0: Good morning. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee shall come to order. We're here to consider nominees for four important positions. <clears throat> Ambassador Jenty Smith to be the Assistant Secretary of State for Diplomatic Security. Ambassador Rena Bitter to be the Assistant Secretary of State for Consular Affairs. Ms. Monica Medina to be the Assistant Secretary of State for Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific Affairs. And Mr. Mark Napper to be the ambassador to Vietnam. Congratulations to the four of you and your nominations. Our thanks for your willingness to serve uh, our country in this capacity and the members of your family, because this is a a family sacrifice uh, as well, so we appreciate their sacrifices. I see that our distinguished colleague and member of this committee, the senator from Massachusetts, is going to be introducing Ms. Medina this morning, so We'll turn to him first before any opening
1: statements. Senator Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. And uh, uh, Ranking Member Risch, thank you um, so much as well. It's my pleasure this morning to introduce President Biden's nominee to be Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Oceans and International Environment and Scientific Affairs, uh, and uh, my friend for 38 years, Monica Medina. It is impossible to think of anyone more qualified for this job. You, you knew her in your infancy then. Uh, and again, I'm now in the infancy of my second adulthood, uh, as, as the Senate Farm Relations Committee makes it possible for us to, to enjoy extended, long, extended political life expectancy. It is impossible to think of anyone more qualified for this job. Uh, Monica has been working for decades and across multiple administrations on environmental law and policy. She understands the interconnected world we live in and knows that the 21st century US foreign policy goes not simply beyond the water's edge but to the seas and the skies and the sands of the world where universal threats and their solutions lie. Uh, Monica won a Reserve Officers Training Corps scholarship while at Uh, 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 Georgetown University. And while working at the Defense Department in the Obama Administration, she worked to end discrimination against women in the military, to provide them with opportunities that were previously closed to them simply because of their gender. Monica has always been a fierce fighter for justice and never backs down from a tough challenge. And she has confronted some of the world's toughest global challenges. Ms. Medina has called out the connection between illegal wildlife trafficking and organized criminal networks. She has fought against illegal fishing, which is tied to global piracy and human rights violations. Just like the climate crisis, these are global, spanning threats to our national security. And Monica's expertise in these areas is why former Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta and the Center for Strategic and International Studies have turned to her as an expert and advisor. Monica knows that we can't protect ourselves at home without a robust strategy abroad. And diplomacy isn't just something that she has practiced in international work. She has worked across the aisle with stakeholders from different states and industries in the United States to protect our oceans and our ocean economy. After the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, she worked with the five Republican governors of affected states to get $1 billion in restoration funds from oil company BP so that states could quickly start rebounding from the disaster. Her work at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration was praised by groups like the Seafood Harvesters of America who support her experience and legacy of protecting our oceans and the workers and communities that depend upon them. Louis Pasteur once said that science knows no country because knowledge belongs to humanity and is the torch which illuminates the world. Science is the highest personification of the nation, because that nation will remain the first which carries the furthest the works of thought and intelligence. Monica Medina has dedicated her career to promoting America's excellence in these two realms, the tools of science and the values of humanity because it is there where America's excellence and promise to the world is to be found. She knows that, and throughout her distinguished career, she has become supremely prepared for the role of Assistant Secretary of State, for the Bureau of Oceans, Environment, and Science. She has been training for it in every position in which she has served, every mission that she has fulfilled, every discussion she's held with key stakeholders. I am so grateful for her continued commitment to our country and planet, as well as for our years of friendship. And I hope my colleagues will join me in supporting her for this important position. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Well, thank you, Senator Mark. A rather glowing uh, introduction, and uh, we know that we know that you have, I'm sure, well well earned. Uh, I know that you may have other uh, committee businesses to do. And so at your leisure, you're you're welcome to depart from us, and thank you for your introduction. Uh, Let me turn to uh, our panel uh, to uh, speak briefly about each of them, turn to Senator Risch, and then we'll listen to your testimony. Ambassador Smith has served the United States and the State Department during his entire professional career with two and a half decades ensuring the security of U.S. diplomatic personnel and U.S. citizens here and abroad. He has been a special agent protecting the Secretary of State, a regional security officer in multiple foreign posts, a deputy assistant secretary and senior advisor in the Bureau of Diplomatic Security. He has served as director for the Office of Foreign Missions, for which he was previously confirmed by the Senate. There's no question in my mind that he is fully qualified and deeply experienced for this position. Ambassador Smith's experience and commitment will be needed as the State Department faces multiple challenges in keeping its personnel safe including a relatively new one. Indeed, U.S. personnel have recently faced the prospect of silent, stealthy assault from what may be some sort of directed energy weapons first employed in Cuba and now showing up in other parts of the world. These incidents deserve the full attention of the United States in order to ensure accountability and that the parties responsible are brought to justice, but most of all to protect our <coughs> personnel. So, Ambassador Smith, I trust that if confirmed, you will be devoted in your efforts to meet this and all threats against U.S. diplomatic and other personnel. Uh, Ms. Medina, uh, as uh, our colleague Senator Markey has said, your knowledge and experience, including as Principal Deputy Undersecretary of Oceans and Atmosphere, the Department of Commerce, and in various leadership roles focused on ocean conservation and environmental policy, suits you well for this position. If confirmed as Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Oceans, International Environmental and Scientific Affairs, you'll be responsible for maintaining U.S. leadership on cooperative efforts to maintain the health and sustainability of the world we all share. If confirmed, you'll also be responsible for managing U.S. diplomacy, on addressing global plastic pollution, protecting endangered species, and combating wildlife trafficking, representing the U.S., the Montreal Protocol, and the Arctic Council, among others. I know you're up to that challenge. As you may know, I co-authored the Save Our Seas 2.0 Act, And I look forward to working with you on the next steps to combating plastic pollution and other global environmental problems. Ambassador Bitter, I'm pleased to see you back uh, before the committee. Your service and layoffs these past several years uh, apparently uh, may not have made headlines in Washington, but it has been with distinction. The position you're nominated for as Assistant Secretary for Council of Affairs is perhaps one of the most challenging positions in the department today. The effects of the COVID pandemic have been particularly felt in the CA from the massive repatriation of American citizens abroad carried out by the department last year to the financial challenges resulting from the consular office fee-for-service model at a time when fees have dried up as a result of decreased international travel. That's something has changed dramatically. We have now a huge demand and a big backlog uh, on passports, which several colleagues of the committee have raised with me. I'm sure that that may be raised with you as to how we deal with it. The mismanagement of the department, broadly speaking, and the consular affairs in particular over the past four years, leaves the next assistant secretary with no shortage of challenges. As consular affairs is also the part of the department that has the most engagement with American citizens, processing passports and visas, supporting overseas travelers in need, and the like. It's also a bureau that receives a high level of congressional scrutiny. While the challenges in the Bureau are evident, I'm confident in your abilities and capacity to serve capably in this position. Finally, I'm pleased to see Mark Napper before the committee for consideration as our next ambassador to Vietnam. We look uh, to develop a genuine strategic partnership with Hanoi, one animated by our shared interests and our values. And I can think of a few more qualified foreign service professionals than Mr. Napper to be entrusted with this important task. In closing, while the four of you have a series of challenges ahead, I'm confident that your knowledge and experience will serve you well as you take on your new responsibilities upon confirmation. I look forward to each of your testimonies. And with that, let me turn to the distinguished ranking member for his opening comments.
2: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, And I want to thank the witnesses for being here today and uh, being willing to serve in these positions and your families who we know share the uh, sacrifices that you make. I want to start with the nomination of Assistant Secretary of State for Oceans and International Environment and Scientific Affairs. The COVID-19 pandemic has exposed what I believe to be serious gaps in U.S. international pandemic prevention, preparedness, and, importantly, response efforts. This includes the failure of the Department of State over multiple administrations of both parties to adequately prioritize global health policy and diplomatic engagement beyond the PEPFAR program, we now realize how important uh, that is. Uh, PEPFAR, of course, uh, was an exception to that. It was uh, uh, very successful, and it's important that we duplicate the success that we had in PEPFAR in uh, what will undoubtedly be future challenges uh, of the global health nature. Ms. Medina, confirmed uh, you will lead the Bureau responsible for ensuring foreign policy coherence and program integrity for global health and biosecurity. I look forward to hearing from you how you plan to improve states' leadership in these vital areas, which, as I said, uh, I think uh, suffer some shortcomings, which have become painfully obvious uh, as a result of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. In addition, COVID-19 has brought to light the risks of collaboration on life sciences research with countries that do not share our interests like China. If confirmed, you'll have a role in overseeing international scientific cooperation and global health security, and it is critical that you work across the department to prevent the misuse of such research. Lastly, as we discussed when we met last month, the Columbia River Treaty remains an important issue to myself and the rest of the Northwest delegation. I look forward to hearing more about how you plan to make uh, Columbia River Treaty negotiations a priority. <clears throat> Next, we have the nomination of Assistant Secretary of State for diplomatic security. For decades, the State Department has, has struggled with what has been dubbed uh, colloquially uh, a bunker mentality, which greatly overprioritizes over-prior- security to the d- detriment of our diplomatic effectiveness. Security is undoubtedly very important, uh, but as with all things... Uh, it must be put in its proper place. This severe risk aversion often keeps our diplomats cooped up behind embassy walls instead of engaging with local community and conducting traditional diplomacy. America's adversaries do not place similar burdens on their diplomats, putting the United States at a strategic disadvantage. Earlier this year, I introduced legislation to improve the process for investigating security incidents abroad so that the department's diplomats can safely do their jobs promote U.S. interests with host countries, and engage local populations with appropriate protection. If confirmed, it will be vitally important to ensure the Department learns to manage risk more effectively. Ambassador Smith, I look forward to hearing your thoughts on these issues. Moving on to the nomination of Assistant Secretary of State for Council of Affairs, the Bureau of Council of Affairs has a unique opportunity to demonstrate how the State Department assists U.S. citizens every day while also advancing our national interests. Whether it's helping Americans who lost a passport on vacation get home, or visiting U.S. citizens who have been incarcerated abroad, Consular Affairs often directly serves the American people. However, last year's travel restrictions and the resulting loss of visa fee revenue greatly hurt the Bureau's finances, potentially affecting its ability to provide these important services. As vaccination rates climb, there will be more people seeking to travel. Demand for passports and visas are rapidly increasing, leading to significant delays in processing times. Ambassador Bitter, I look forward to hearing your plan to get consular affairs fully operational and to reduce these extremely irregular passport processing times. Finally, we have the nomination of uh, ambassador to Vietnam. Vietnam is an important U.S. uh, partner and an ASEAN member. I am very glad to see the recent U.S. donation of 2 million Moderna vaccine uh, through COVAX to Vietnam, in addition to separate donations to Indonesia and Malaysia. Southeast Asian countries need vaccines. Given the importance of this region to the United States and the pressure some countries are facing from China to accept it's clear, it's clearly substandard vaccines, it is crucial that the United States continue to prioritize delivery, uh, deliveries to our partners there. We need to redouble our efforts following the non-transparent COVAX procurement deal announced earlier this week that will allow China to profit mightily from the distribution uh, of its substandard vaccines. All of this, very ironic. Beyond vaccines, I think it's, criti- uh, it's crucial that we advance collaboration with Vietnam in important areas such as the South China Sea and the Mekong region and the crisis in um, Myanmar. We should also continue to prioritize all forms of energy engagement, including liquefied natural gas. Finally, in closing, I continue to support engagement with Vietnam to promote freedom of speech and religion. Mr. Napper, I look forward to hearing uh, how you will tackle all these issues if you are confirmed. Uh, we have a lot to cover today, and I'll yield back. Thank
0: you. Thank you, Senator Rich. All right, we will start our uh, testimony from our nominees. Uh, we'd ask you to summarize your statement in about five minutes. All of your full statements will be included in the record without objection. Uh, we'll start with Ambassador Smith and then move down the
3: the aisle. Ambassador Smith. Chairman Menendez. Ranking Member Risch and members of the committee, I'm honored to appear before you today as President Biden's nominee to be the Department of State's Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Diplomatic Security. I'm grateful for the confidence that the President and Secretary Blinken have placed in me and I'm humbled by the opportunity to lead such an outstanding organization. In the 105 year history of diplomatic security, I'm just the third DS agent to be nominated to serve as Assistant Secretary. In my 30-year career with the Foreign Service, I am proud to have served as a DS agent for 27 years prior to my appointment as the director for the Office of Foreign Missions, a position a position that I held into my <coughs> retirement in 2017. I would like to thank you for your continued and unwavering support for both the department and for diplomatic security. I am very proud to be associated with the outstanding women and men who labor tirelessly to protect America's diplomatic facilities, critical information, and most importantly, American lives. They also conduct extensive important law enforcement investigations necessary to keep our country safe. I want to thank my wife, Georgette, our adult children and their spouses, and our six adorable grandchildren for the love and support and for allowing me to return to rejoin an institution that I love. It is indeed an honor to lead the dedicated special agents, security engineers, diplomatic couriers, security technicians, and other specialized personnel in providing a secure environment in which to conduct US foreign policy. I first joined Diplomatic Security in 1987 after proudly serving as a police officer in Raleigh, North Carolina. These were the early days of building the Diplomatic Security Service. I grew up in the organization as it grew to meet increasing global security challenges as well as domestic challenges in U.S. national security interests. Having served in Cairo during both Gulf Wars and Rangoon during a period of unrest and uncertainty that rivals the current situation, I am familiar with the importance of strong leadership and requisite security operations. Upon returning to the U.S. and serving in senior positions in diplomatic security, I am, pr- I am proud to have collaborated closely with other department colleagues, the intelligence community, DOD, and members of Congress to construct and improve diplomatic facilities here and abroad while enabling our personnel to project US government interests around the world. I am also proud and honored to receive Senate approval to lead the Office of Foreign Missions during my last tour tenure with the department. My body of work within the department and subsequent experiences as an independent consultant in the private sector is what has prepared me to assume leadership as the Assistant Secretary for Diplomatic Security. I'm aware that there will always be challenges as we seek to advance U.S. interests around the world. With support and continued guidance from members of this committee and Congress as a whole, my my top priority, if confirmed, will be to help to ensure that the department effectively protects its physical assets, information, and most importantly, lives. At the same time, however, I recognize that effective diplomacy is virtually impossible without the ability to take considered risk in service of strategic goals and objectives. It will be my responsibility to evaluate various threat-mitigating strategies and to help the department, make the best possible calculations in support of American diplomacy. Risk management is particularly critical in high-threat countries, most notably at the moment in Afghanistan, as American troop levels are drawn down. Closer to home, we need to do more to promote diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility within our ranks while empowering diplomatic security agents to conduct effective investigations in support of protective details as well as passport and visa fraud. The recent solar winds intrusion has underlined the importance of DS's role in maintaining a 24-7 watch on the department's global cyber infrastructure, a challenge which it promises to intensify over the coming years. I also look forward to overseeing further improvements in our law enforcement and other security training at the Department's new Foreign Affairs Security Training Center in Blackstone, Virginia. Finally, if confirmed, I look forward to working closely with this body to ensure your interests and concerns are properly addressed and that we work together to protect our personnel, facilities, and national interests abroad and domestically. Thank you for your time and consideration, and I'm happy to entertain any of your questions.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, Ambassador Bitter.
4: Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, and members of the committee, I am honored to appear before you today and grateful to President Biden and Secretary Blinken for the trust they have placed in me. It is with no small measure of humility that I approach the responsibility before me if confirmed. I believe there is no part of the Department of State more directly responsible for the security and well-being of Americans at home and abroad than the Bureau of Consular Affairs. In fact, diplomats have been serving their fellow citizens abroad in consular missions since before the Constitution was written. These are the oldest and most vital functions of the Department of State. Consular work is not glamorous, and it can often be heartbreaking. But colleagues in the Bureau do not do this work for recognition. They are the truest of public servants, working under sometimes very difficult conditions on behalf of the American people. For a recent example, the men and women of the Bureau of Consular Affairs led the repatriation of nearly 100,000 Americans at the beginning of the pandemic, often risking their own health and safety. The Senate recognized this effort with Senate Resolution 567, commending the Department for its efforts on behalf of our fellow citizens. I would also like to add my thanks to the Bureau for all it does on behalf of the American people, much of which takes place below their notice. If confirmed, it would be the honor of a lifetime to lead this extraordinary team. I've had many jobs and many proud moments during the span of my 27-year career, but the proudest have revolved around consular services. In Amman, my team issued the very first special immigrant visas for Iraqi translators at the start of that program in 2006. I understand on a very personal level the US government's commitment to the men and women who serve beside us. Another proud moment was more recent as ambassador, when I received a letter from two grieving New England families whose newlywed children were tragically killed while on their honeymoon in Laos. The families wrote to thank me for the compassionate support they received from our embassy team during their time of immeasurable grief. They enclosed their children's joint obituary from their hometown paper, in which the families thanked our consular officer by name. As I said, the work can often be heartbreaking. But it's vital, and never more so than now. President Biden promised to craft a foreign policy for the middle class. A strong, healthy Bureau of Consular Affairs will be critical to this effort. But the global pandemic has taken a toll on the Bureau. I know the Department is very grateful to Congress for its support for consular services over the last several months. I am aware that the Bureau has had to make some difficult decisions due to pandemic-related constraints on space and resources. More difficult decisions lie ahead. But prior to the pandemic, international visitors contributed more than $260 billion to the US economy and directly supported millions of jobs. And we must get back there again. If confirmed, my top priority will be that we do, to see that the Bureau is able to meet the need for consular services, even in this constrained resource environment and with the continued (coughs) uncertainty of the global pandemic. A related priority, if confirmed, I will work with department stakeholders and our partners in Congress to develop a more resilient funding model so the Bureau will always have a stable platform from which to carry out its mission. Finally, I believe the Bureau of Consular Affairs has no more important partner than Congress. The Department of State is charged with representing the interests of US citizens around the world, with reminding foreign governments that the United States has no higher priority than the welfare of its citizens, and with ensuring that our foreign policy reflects that goal. I believe executing these responsibilities are at the heart of the mission that the President and Secretary have entrusted me with and to which I am prepared to dedicate all my energy. If confirmed, I will advocate for your constituents. On a personal note, I would like to thank my family and my family of friends who have put up with long absences over the course of my career and then generously welcomed me home as if I had never been gone. Many of them are here today or watching. When I last had the honor to appear before this committee, my nephew Josh was among them, sitting behind me. He died in December, and today, as every day, we mourn his absence. But I think he would be pleased to know that our love for him would be memorialized in the congressional record, and I thank the committee for indulging me in doing so. With that, I thank you, and I welcome your questions.
0: Thank you, Ambassador, and our sympathies to you and thank your you. family for the loss of your nephew. Ms. Medina, floor's floor is yours.
5: I want to begin by thanking Senator Markey. My microphone is on. There, can you hear me now? Yes. Thank you, Chairman Menendez. I want to begin by thanking Senator Markey for that very kind introduction and for decades of friendship. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch and members of the committee, it is a tremendous honor to appear before you today as the President's nominee for Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of Oceans, International Environmental and Scientific Affairs, or OES. I'm deeply honored to be nominated by President Biden and for the trust that he and Secretary Blinken have placed in me. I'm also thrilled to have the chance to serve my country again. I would like to begin by thanking my family. I'm eternally grateful to my husband, Ron, and our grown children, Hannah, Michael, and Daniel, for their constant support and encouragement as I pursued a career in environmental conservation, even when it took me far from home. I also must thank my mother, Jean, a retired middle school teacher who, through her passion for elephants and other wildlife, taught me the importance of biodiversity to life on earth. If confirmed, I'm eager to consult, engage, and collaborate with members of this committee and to build on your great work on ocean conservation, ending wildlife trafficking and illegal fishing, stemming the rise of future pandemics, fighting plastic pollution, and other OES issues of interest to you. I would not be here today if it were not for the opportunity to the U.S. Army gave me to attend Georgetown University on an Army ROTC scholarship at a time when there were not many women who received them. Both my parents were teachers, and I could not have afforded a private university like Georgetown otherwise, and my dream was for a career in government and law. I could not have imagined then that my scholarship would lead me to where I sit today, that I would serve twice in in the Pentagon, once in uniform, work in positions of responsibility on the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee staff, at the Department of Justice, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the Department of Commerce twice, and now with your approval at the State Department. OES is at the forefront of our responses to the global challenge of the present and also the global challenge of the future. Clearly, our nation must continue to work to defeat COVID-19 globally and better prepare for and prevent future pandemics. Likewise, there is no greater long-term threat to our safety and security than climate change. I look forward to supporting the administration's work on both these fundamental threats to our health, security, and prosperity. I would additionally raise three areas of particular concern to me. My decades of experience attending and representing the U.S. at international meetings leads me to believe that there will be increasing global tensions over limited natural resources. If confirmed, I would dedicate special attention to the following. First, the loss of biodiversity is a crisis and it is often overlooked, but there is great bipartisan work being done here in Congress to conserve species globally and to assist countries in Africa, Asia, and the Americas in their efforts to do the same. I greatly admire the International Conservation Caucus's efforts to work collaboratively with legislative counterparts from around the world to ensure that we don't lose elephants or rhinos or tigers or penguins or pangolins to extinction. Second, the ocean needs our attention. There is too much tension, damage, and lawless behavior in the seas due to deep disagreements over a plethora of hot-button issues, such as excessive maritime claims, illegal unreported and unregulated fishing, the dramatic changes in rapid development in the polar regions, and the disregard by bad actors of global shipping, safety, and security rules, as well as pervasive plastic pollution and ocean chemistry changes. I'm very impressed by the work of the Ocean Caucus on these issues, and if confirmed, implementing the recently passed Save RC's 2.0 Act will be a priority of mine. Finally, given the rapid growth and competition in space exploration and commercialization, space policy is at a key inflection point. A new space race could escalate global tensions among superpowers and create problems for future generations if we don't work to ensure today that space actors are complying with their obligations under international law and space activities are pursued in a manner that is safe, responsible, and sustainable. All of these issues also merit special attention by OES, in my view, because they are central to addressing our nation's strategic competition with China. Moreover, each of these challenges must be handled in a way that ensures the equitable inclusion of diverse stakeholders and the private sector in our solutions. In tackling these and other challenges, I want to assure the committee that I will work every day on behalf of the American people, with the goal of ensuring that our efforts around the world support Americans at home and make their lives better. Thank you for considering me for this position and I look forward to answering your questions.
6: Thank you, Uh, Mr. Knapper. Thank you, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, distinguished members of this committee for the opportunity today to appear before you. I am honored in the faith that President Biden and Secretary Blinken have placed in me. I also want to express my deep love and gratitude to my wife, Suzuko, and our son, Alex, for their support and their sacrifice. They have repeatedly changed homes and schools and have been distant from family and friends so that we could serve the United States overseas. Without them, as well as my parents, Jay and Yolanda Saltzman, I would not be here today. The United (laughs) States-Vietnam relationship has undergone a profound transformation since the normalization of diplomatic relations 26 years ago, and my own family history tracks the arc of our relationship with Vietnam. My late father, Marine Colonel Roger Knapper, was a decorated Vietnam combat veteran who often recounted difficult memories from his time at war. Yet he also talked many times of his earnest wish to return to Vietnam and see that beautiful country at peace and thriving. This wish was fulfilled three times during my previous service at our embassy in Hanoi. And although he will not make it back for a fourth visit, We will always be grateful for the efforts and sacrifices he and millions of other Americans have made during our long journey with Vietnam. Our two countries have moved from a history of conflict to a comprehensive partnership that spans political, security, economic, and people-to-people ties. If confirmed, I will work to continue developing the U.S.-Vietnam relationship across a wide range of shared interests in four key areas. First, security. Our two countries have significantly expanded our security cooperation, including through U.S. support to strengthen Vietnam's maritime capabilities. The U.S. and Vietnam share an interest in upholding international law and resisting China's provocative behavior in the South China Sea and Mekong region. And if confirmed, I will make every effort to deepen our cooperation in this area. Second, trade and investment. Bilateral trade with Vietnam has grown significantly, increasing from nearly nothing in 1995 to more than $90 billion in 2020, benefiting American manufacturers, farmers, and ranchers, as well as consumers. But despite this growth, challenges remain. And if confirmed, I will advocate for a level playing field for US companies and investors, including by urging Vietnam to maintain equitable market access for US digital services and agricultural products. Third, war legacy and humanitarian issues. If confirmed, providing the fullest possible accounting for US personnel missing from the Vietnam War era will be my solemn duty. Furthermore, for decades, Vietnam has provided critical assistance to those efforts, and we're grateful. Since 1993, the U.S. has also contributed more than $160 million to (coughs) mitigate lingering threats posed by unexploded ordnance. And together with Vietnam, we have successfully completed the remediation of dioxin contamination in Da Nang, and in 2019, we broke ground on another project to remediate dioxin at Bien Hoa Air Base. Our cooperation on these issues, as well as providing $125 million since 1989 in humanitarian assistance, supporting over a million persons with disabilities regardless of the cause, has been an important foundation for our bilateral relationship. Fourth and finally, people to people ties. The bonds between the American and Vietnamese people are strong and growing. Prior to the pandemic, nearly 700,000 Americans traveled to Vietnam annually, including more than 1,200 American students. And here in the US, we welcome 30,000 Vietnamese students each year. These people-to-people ties are an important bridge between our two countries. All that said, our thriving relationship is not without its challenges. We remain deeply concerned about Vietnam's human rights record, in particular, reports of the troubling trend of harassment, arbitrary or unlawful arrests, unjust convictions, and harsh sentences of journalists and activists. If confirmed, I will press the government of Vietnam to respect the freedoms of expression, association, peaceful assembly, and religion and belief. Only when we see significant progress on human rights can our two countries' partnership reach its full potential. And as always, my number one priority will be protecting the safety and welfare of all United States citizens in Vietnam. And I will also make the safety and welfare of Mission Vietnam personnel a top priority. The thriving US-Vietnam partnership is the result of the courage, goodwill, and painstaking work of dedicated people in both countries who believed in the possibility of peace and reconciliation between two former enemies. Our overarching goal remains to advance American interests and support the development of a strong, prosperous, and independent Vietnam that contributes to international security and respects human rights and the rule of law. Thank you for considering my nomination. I look forward to your questions.
0: Thank you very much. We'll start a round of five-minute questions. and. Before I start my own line of questions, I have some overarching questions for the committee. Uh, First, I have a few questions that speak to the importance that this committee places on responsiveness uh, by all officials in the executive branch and that we expect and will be seeking from all of you. So I'd like to ask each of you to provide a simple yes or no answer to the following questions. Do you agree appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes. Yes.
3: Yes.
6: Yes. Okay.
5: Yes.
0: Uh, do you commit to, commi- uh, to keep the committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes.
3: Yes. Yes.
0: Uh, do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation when policies are being developed not just <coughs> providing notification after the fact? Yes.
3: yes, yes, yes,
0: and finally do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information? Requested by the committee and its designated staff. Yes.
4: Yes. Yes.
3: yes.
0: All right. Thank you very much uh, Ambassador Bitter. Uh, let me ask you, uh, there's a lot of issues under your portfolio, what will be your portfolio. Um, from the question of uh, COVID vaccines for American citizens abroad, which will not be only within the responsibility of the Bureau of Consular Affairs, but I cannot imagine that you won't be engaged uh, in it. Um What do you think are the primary challenges for CA and the department more broadly on administering such a vaccine program in the face of a global pandemic for American citizens abroad?
4: Sorry, thank you. Um, Thank you, Senator. I'm I'm aware of the um, concern that uh, members of Congress have, and also uh, this issue I know is of great concern to many Americans. Um, The... To, you know, as the way that the department has approached this is that it has um, worked in the interagency to try to make sure that vaccines are available to countries who have yet to acquire them. And then within the department, we've tried to make available consular information to Americans abroad to ensure that they're aware of how they can get access to vaccines where they are available and make sure that they have information about um local medical providers and health care. And that's the general form of consular services to those abroad. And if there are particular needs, of course, the embassies abroad are always prepared to address consular services and whatever needs American citizens have. Um, The the department has not typically provided uh, medical care to private citizens. Um, So I think there would be many challenges attendant upon that. not least of which would simply be the issues involved in just administering the vaccines. It would be quite challenging. Um, I
0: hope we, we will think about, uh, and I understand that the department has not been involved in delivering healthcare services to citizens abroad, but in a global pandemic, uh, I hope we will think about how we help an American citizen living abroad, maybe because of work or some other reason, to find access to a vaccine. Because when a country has its own vaccination program, of course, it is focused on its own citizens. And so that leaves an American citizen in limbo, uh, potentially. So I, I hope we will give a little thought to how we can create a greater connection uh, for American citizens abroad in, in that context. Um, let me turn to the question of passports. Uh, as you may know, an, an artifact uh, of the COVID crisis, that the Department. Uh, remains considerably backed up on passport processing at the National Passport Center. Um, I was listening to several of our colleagues on the committee and my own experience back in New Jersey of citizens who have months uh, that they applied for their passport and cannot uh, get a a response. Um, And, of course, with uh, the opening of the world, and the surge uh, in demand, uh, there's a greater demand. Do do you have a sense, I know you're not there, but in your briefings, do you have a sense of the current backlog and uh, what's your thoughts about working to
4: clear it up? Um, Thank you, Senator. Um, I'm very aware of this issue and I know it's very important um, to, to you and to your constituents. It's important to the department as well. And just, I share your concern um, about the length of time that it's currently taking and the department takes very seriously its responsibility in this area it's a very visible part of the work that the department does and it's important to get it to get secure and uh, efficiently issued visa uh, passports rather um, out to American citizens as quickly as possible um, you know like many organizations um, the the bureau and its partners have been faced with um, uh, with ramping up in a situation where COVID uh, restrictions are lifting more slowly than demand is rising. (laughs) So it's a pretty fast moving situation. Um, The department is um, reviewing each passport agency, according to the science um, and deciding when they can fully reopen. So it is an evolving situation. Um, uh, I, I know again, that this is something of great concern to you. And I, I, Would be very happy to work with my colleagues in congressional affairs to make sure that members and your staff can get up-to-the-minute briefings and the most recent information. But right now I think um, it's taking between the passport office and its partners up to 18 weeks for passports that are not expedited to be processed.
0: I will say that the briefings are great. Actions are more important. Mm -hmm. Uh, What we really need is uh, some type of surge capacity for a period of time uh, to deal with the backlog. Um, I don't think that we can... uh, Many Americans, it's not just a question of, of, of travel for leisure, but it is travel for business again. It is travel to see family members who they may not have seen for well over a year and a half, two years because of covid uh, so it's about a family reunification issue as well. I really, I, I, I'll tell the secretary as well, but I really urge you all to think about a surge capacity for a period of time uh, to get uh, uh, us into a more reasonable period of time in which people have to wait. Finally, not because there aren't many more issues, but uh, uh, I appreciate the important work the department does to vet visas, to assure there's no fraud and abuse, but I can tell you I have a regular stream of complaints about the uh, the department's transparency and communication and sometimes its agility and responsiveness when it comes to processing visas for non-American family of U.S. citizens to visit the United States student visas and work and business visas. I'm interested in your thoughts about where and how we can improve the visa application and processing system so that applicants, even if they are turned down, face an open, transparent, and rapid process that speaks to our best values as a nation. I can't tell you how many times, uh, you know, I, I know that an applicant has to overcome the hurdle of showing that they have roots in their country, that they are likely to return, that they are not likely to stay in the United States. I'm very familiar with the immigration law in that respect. So that, that's a hurdle they must meet. But I can't tell you how many times I've had individuals who have properties in their country, businesses in their country, deep family ties in their country, and, and no uh, re- reasonable expectation that they would stay in the United States. And they get, uh, many of them feel they get arbitrarily and uh, capriciously just rejected. Mm. So there's a there's the feeling, uh, you know, we, we we want people in the world uh, to think of the United States uh, as a place that is welcoming and a fo- and follows uh, rules of law, yet they feel that they haven't had, so to speak, their day in court. I understand the incredible uh, crush uh, on consular officers, but we have to think uh, of how do we process in a better way. Do you have any thoughts on that?
4: Um, Thank you, Senator. Um, I would not be telling the truth if I hadn't said to you that I haven't heard those comments as well. I have. and um, I think they speak to to issues of respect um, and issues of um, making sure that our consular officers are able to have what are sometimes quite quick interactions in a respectful and clear way. Um, it can be a very difficult, It can be a very challenging job, but um, I'm very conscious of the fact, and we all are in the department, and I know the Bureau of Consular Affairs is as well, that these officers are often the first, or sometimes the only Americans that um, these host country nationals would meet will meet, and it is enormously important that that interaction does reflect our values and does reflect the best that we have to offer. Um, so I, I take your point and I share it and I, um, I, I share your concern. And um, if confirmed, it is a, a, it would be my goal to make sure that every consular officer in every embassy and every interaction that they have with host country nationals reflects the diplomats that they are um, and reflects the best values of America.
2: All right, thank you. Uh, Senator Rishi <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I, first of all, I want to associate myself with the remarks regarding uh, a surge to get caught up on uh, visas and, uh, uh, and passports. Uh, certainly one of the great freedoms Americans have is the freedom to travel and uh, also to welcome their uh, non-American family members here to the United States. And It's important we get caught up on that as, as we go forward. Uh, I want to focus, uh, however, on um, another area that the chairman and I are working together on, and that is uh, global health. We, we're here uh, where we are on the pandemic, and uh, we're really focused on vaccines today. and that's important. Uh, it's very important. I think uh, the, the only way we're going to get past this is uh, the uh, a, a good uh, vaccine program, not only in the United States but around the world. But more importantly, I think we need to look to the future. And I think one of the most important things that this committee can do uh, is to work on a protocol for the future and establishing uh, uh, protocols and uh, infrastructure uh, that will get all of the countries pulling the wagon together uh, to address a global pandemic. That did not happen this time. We all know that. Uh, There were uh, major uh, flaws, uh, major holes in uh, uh, various countries uh, attempting to get through this. And so uh, the the chairman and I have uh, been working on uh, global health uh, policy and a global health bill. And I hope, uh, Ms. Medina, that you will uh, familiarize yourself with that and commit to helping us get in place uh, uh, an infrastructure uh, protocol uh, for dealing with these things when they happen immediately. Uh, there's no substitute for being able to address uh, the challenge immediately. And that is primarily what our legislation is... Uh, Uh, is uh, designed to do. We all know, uh, and the the stories are legion, as far as the uh, failures uh, right at the beginning of this pandemic that caused no end of problems for the world, including the number of deaths. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that.
5: Senator Risch, thank you very much for that question. And as you know, when we discussed it in your office and with your staff, Um, There's no higher priority for the Bureau of Oceans, Environment, and Science um, than uh, dealing with the current crisis and preventing and preparing for future crises. And I look forward to working with you, if confirmed, to try and uh, build up, bulk up, the ability of the Bureau to be that repository of expertise and to prepare the U.S. for um, what is likely to be Additional challenges like the one we faced in the future, um, and I look forward to working with you on uh, your legislation and and hearing your thoughts, if confirmed, about how we could do that together.
2: Well, thanks, I, and I uh, I will tell you that uh, we all know the United States government is big, uh, it is complex, it's got many agencies, and the important uh, that there's an important function that Congress can play. And hopefully we will play with legislation that the, the chairman and I have been working on as far as resolving who's in charge and who makes those decisions. Because again, sometimes you get uh, people of uh, equal stature in the government making uh, conflicting decisions and somebody's got to straighten that out. And uh, this, this legislation attempts to address that and hopefully will address that. In addition to that, of course, it's the same thing internationally. And that is establishing uh, some type of uh, structure internationally where these kind of questions can be answered and answered clearly. Uh, we had uh, a lot of gray areas uh, during uh, the, particularly during the early parts uh, of the pandemic. And these uh, in in the best interest of the American people and the best interest of the world uh, need to be straightened out. And that responsibility is right here with the foreign relations committee. So we're attempting to discharge that uh, responsibility uh, we'll certainly look to you for your assistance and help, and uh, we believe that the, uh, uh, that the State Department uh, is uh, the appropriate place for, as a clearinghouse, for making these kind of decisions. And again, I, I fully appreciate that we're, we're focused uh, on vaccine right now, but it's really important that we walk and chew gum at the same time and prepare for the, uh, for the next pandemic. So with that, my time's up. Thank you.
7: I understand we have Senator Booker by Webex, who's next. I understand he is not available. We'll go to Senator Kane.
8: Thank you to my colleagues and congratulations to the nominees for your appointments. I have questions. I have a million questions for all of you, but in five minutes I'm gonna ask questions of Mr. Smith and Mr. Knapper. Mr. Smith, um, Virginia is the home for training of security professionals who work not only for the state department <laughs> the facility center that you referenced in your opening statement at Fort Pickett in Blackstone Virginia but also the marine security guards that protect our embassies around the world are trained at a at a wonderful facility at Quantico um, I've worked very hard as a member of this committee over the 9 years I've served on it to advance the security training of our state department professionals um, the, uh, the 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 siting of the training center at Fort Pickett was something I was very involved in in the early part of my time on the committee. Uh, it's come a long way, and I still I think there's even more that can be done there. And I would hope uh, at some point, should you be confirmed to possibly visit with you so uh, we could assess together its current status and what more might be done to enhance the security training of State Department personnel.
3: If confirmed, Senator, uh, I look forward to that and thank you for your support.
8: Right, thank you so much. And, Mr. Knepper, with respect to Vietnam, I I, uh, traveled on a bipartisan CODEL to Vietnam in April of 2019. Uh, It was a tremendous visit, and we we found so much interest in deeper partnerships with the United States on military cooperation. There was was appreciation for the U.S. role led by Senator Leahy for decades now to work on cleanup of dioxins and other contaminants at military bases in Vietnam, and the, the warm welcome we received. From Vietnamese officials and the Vietnamese public it was very heartwarming. But uh, of the of the number of concerns I have about Vietnam, one that's most significant is the deplorable uh, absence of press freedom. Of organizations that rank countries in the world for press freedom, freedom um, put Vietnam very low on the list of recent ranking. Had them one hundred and seventy fifth out of one hundred and eighty. One of the things that seemed pretty vibrant in twenty nineteen was while the press was being cracked down on, there was still a pretty vibrant and open internet culture, but that's also been significantly constrained in the last two years. Um, What can the United States do? What would you do as ambassador, should you be confirmed, to try to promote uh, broader notions of press and uh, freedom and freedom of speech in Vietnam?
6: Well, thank you, Senator, and and thank you to you and your, your colleagues for the great support that Congress has provided our bilateral relationship over the years. Uh, As for uh, press freedoms and other freedoms in Vietnam, I fully agree, Uh, we have serious, serious concerns. This is something that if confirmed, I will make a focus of mine. Uh, I think one way uh, we can seek to improve the situation is just to never miss an opportunity to raise uh, with senior Vietnamese officials our our deep concerns and to underline the point that our relationship uh, will never reach its full potential unless we're able to see improvements in some of these areas, whether it's freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly. Uh, as you noted, the Internet is increasingly a contested area for these basic freedoms. And uh, you know, among the messages we can deliver to the government of Vietnam is that uh, they have signed on to a number of international treaties in which they've committed to support uh, universal rights, such as those of freedom and assembly. And so I think a point uh, we can strongly make is that Uh, Should Vietnam uh, seek to earn its place in the international community as a leader, it's going to have to abide by some of the commitments it's made internationally.
8: Last thing I'll say about the U.S.-Vietnam relationship is one of the powerful, I think, attractors of the U.S. relationship to Vietnamese people is their deep concern about China and the historic animosity that uh, they've had because of Chinese incursions into Vietnam Um, Shortly before our visit, there were massive protests all around Vietnam that were a little bit unusual, street protests, and they were fomented by the Communist Party leadership of Vietnam uh, prepping to do sort of a sweetheart deal where China and Chinese companies would be able to come into an economic zone uh, without really uh, any competition from anyone else. And it it was notable to see that the Vietnamese government wanted to do it, that the Vietnamese people took to the streets to stop them from doing it. And that at least in some temporary way, it caused the communist party leadership of Vietnam to step back. Um, th- there is a deep desire for deeper relationship with the United States to be a counterpoint to a China that has been so often an aggressor against Vietnam. And that's important for us to know. And it's important for us to uh, contemplate as we seek to build a deeper relationship with Vietnam and, uh, I look forward to working with all of you, should you be confirmed, very high qualified panel. Thank you, I yield back. Thank you, Uh, Senator Haggerty.
9: Thank you, Senator Cardin, and uh, congratulations to each of you for being nominated today. Um, I take particular interest in one of our nominees, that is um, ambassador to be, Mark Knapper. Mark, I'm delighted to see that Suzuko and Alex have joined you today. Um, I would say this, that uh, I'm certain Colonel Roger Knapper is smiling today, too. I'm sure he takes a great deal of pride in your career. It's been my great honor to have served with you for the past four years working with you, and I also take a great deal of pride in the fact that you're sitting here today. Um, I'm also very optimistic. Um, I think that you will be confirmed, and I think that you're going to work with a great team. My former DCM, Joe Young, Dan Krentenbrink, I think uh, at EAP, we're gonna be very well re- represented in an area that presents great strategic challenges for America today. So I am very, very pleased to see you here. You know, America is challenged in the South China Sea like never before. The world is challenged in the South China Sea like never before because of the claims that China continues to maintain, I think, uh, w- without foundation uh, to, to sovereignty over much of that region. You've had unique experience, Mark. You've had experience in Japan. You've had experience in Hanoi. You've had experience dealing with India on the India desk, with China and Mongolia. Uh, and, and certainly, you did a wonderful job as DCM and Chargé d'Affaires in South Korea. You understand this region. I see great opportunity between Vietnam and the United States from an economic standpoint that has been manifest. We've seen great, great, uh, project, great trajectory there. Uh, I think economic ties support strategic ties. But what I'd really like to talk about for a moment is the strategic opportunity that Vietnam presents for the United States, for our quad partners, and for uh, the safety and security of that region. I would love to get your thoughts on the role that you would play and help lead as our ambassador to Vietnam.
6: Thank you very much, Senator, and thank you very much for your your kind words about uh, about my family. Uh, I mean, you're absolutely right, right now, I think our our shared view with Vietnam is that there is no greater challenge we face right now than that of, of China, China's aggressive and provocative behavior, particularly some of its sweeping and unlawful maritime claims in the South China Sea, uh, what it's doing along the Mekong River, uh, damming and releasing water, uh, causing deep, deep problems for 66 million people who live along that river and rely upon it for their, their livelihoods. If confirmed, Senator, I will make a priority deepening our strategic relationship with Vietnam. Right now, we have what we call a comprehensive partnership. We hope to raise it to a strategic partnership. And I will take steps to do that by uh, strengthening even further our security relationship with Vietnam. This is something that you mentioned Ambassador Crittenbrink. He did a great job over three years in bringing us to the next level. I'd like to take us further. I think uh, deepening our economic partnership uh, by opening the market there further to uh, American... Agricultural goods, digital services, as you said, strengthening our trade and economic ties can only benefit our strategic uh, sort of uh, inter- interactions and our strategic uh, sort of interdependence. And so, this, if confirmed, will be uh, will be a priority of mine, as well as deepening our people-to-people ties. the The shoulders upon which all of our efforts with Vietnam stand are are the ties between our two peoples, whether it's young people going back and forth, students studying each other's countries, and so that will also be, sir, a priority of mine if if confirmed.
9: Well, thank you very much. I look forward to working with you along all of those lines and know that you have a strong ally in the United States, and not only with me, but with the members of this committee in achieving these goals. Could I turn to you, Ambassador Bitter? Um, there's an area, again, related to China that's a deep concern of mine. I'm certain that you're aware of this concern, and that is overseas students coming from China that pose a security threat to the nation. I would just like to ask you in very specific terms, if you're familiar with... Uh, the Executive Order uh, 10043. That Executive Order suspends the entry of certain students and researchers from the People's Republic of China. Yes, Senator. And if you're confirmed, do you agree to notify me and this committee if there are any changes made to that Executive Order?
4: Yes, Senator.
9: And in the meantime, do you agree to, to uphold? the tenets of that executive order. Yes, Senator. Thank you very much, Ambassador. I appreciate it. I yield back.
0: Thank you. Senator Cardin.
7: Well, first, let me thank all four of our nominees for their service to our country and our willingness to continue to serve our nation. Uh, we thank you. We thank your families. We know that this is very much uh, a, a family commitment. Ambassador Bitter, I would like to start with you. I, uh, I just want to concur with Senator Menendez's comments in regards to the passport issues. And as Senator Menendez said, you're not responsible for the current backlog. Eighteen weeks is unacceptable. Unacceptable. Uh, we have constituents who, in good faith, have made travel plans, expecting that if they requested uh, a passport uh, document, that it would be done in a matter of a few months not four months and some are suffering now extreme uh, economic hardships as well as personal hardships for not being able to get those documents and they don't fall into the narrow definition of a life's emergency uh, that would require uh, uh... more immediate action we're also concerned that some have requested passport support months ago may not even be in at the front of the line in regards to people who are now requesting help. Uh, And again, we recognize that you're not responsible for the current circumstances. I thought Senator Menendez made an excellent point about the need for surge. Uh, I I would like to get your commitment that this will receive your priority confirmed and that we cannot allow an 18-week backlog in passport applications.
4: Yes, Senator, you have my commitment. I share your concern, and it will be my top priority if confirmed.
7: Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Knapper, I am going to follow up on the questions that were asked by Senator Kane in regards to Vietnam. I've been to Vietnam. Vietnam certainly is a much different country than it was when we were at war with Vietnam. We've made significant progress in improving our relationship between our two countries. Uh, we were Uh, on the path towards the Trans-Pacific Partnership on a good governance section that was uh, important to deal with the uh, corruption in the country and uh, good governance. Uh, Vietnam was making progress, I would suggest, on basic human rights, even though it's an authoritarian government. And now we've seen a backsliding, as uh, Senator Kane said, on freedom of the media. I could also Add the right of their citizens to peacefully protest their government has been very much infringed upon. And they have now changed their cyber laws uh, in regards to comments about history can be now challenged by the government, infringing upon uh, the use of the internet. Uh, These are trends that are very disturbing. And I would like to drill down a little bit more about your strategies for dealing with the human rights issues in Vietnam and how you'll keep us informed and work with us uh, as we look at the tools that we have given the administration to advance uh, human rights and making sure that they're used fully in Vietnam.
6: Thank you, Senator. I think one area in which we have seen progress over the past few years have been in the expansion of rights afforded to women, uh, minorities, people with disabilities, Uh, Members of the LGBT community and I think one of the ways we were able to secure and and see these these advances uh, was thanks to uh, sort of increased cooperation with and assistance to uh, NGOs and activists within Vietnam who work within these specific areas and with these groups and so if if confirmed I would seek to not only continue the great work uh, that the US government has done not just with activist groups and NGOs within Vietnam, but also uh, groups in the United States, Vietnamese American community, for example, to identify uh, problematic areas, to uh, try and uh, identify potential strategies and tactics going forward, uh, because this is absolutely an a uh, priority area for me personally. I worked on these issues uh, 15 years ago when I previously served in Vietnam, uh, and it will continue to be an area of focus for, for me and for Mission Vietnam, and you absolutely have my commitment to work with with you and your colleagues, sir, in the Congress to uh, look for opportunities and tools to, to further uh, seek to improve the situation there in, in Vietnam.
7: Thank you. I, I would just add that it's very important that our mission in Vietnam uh, support the NGOs and civil society groups that are working to advance these priorities so that our embassy is always a home for those who uh, have uh, roles who improve the, the governance in Vietnam and sometimes need the support uh, of our embassy. And I see you're shaking your head yes, and I'll just put your shaking of the head yes into the record. With that, Mr. Chairman, I'll yield back. Thank you. All
0: right. Uh, I prefer an oral answer when I ask you a question, but I, but I don't want to interpret your head shaking as a yes, and maybe you tell me later on it was a no. So. Uh,
6: well, it was actually a head nodding, Senator. <laughs> Thank you.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, I understand there are no other members. Oh, no. I'm sorry. So Senator Rednall just walked you in. All right.
10: Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Risch. And to all of you, congratulations on your nomination. And um, let me start, if I could, with you, Ambassador Ritter. And I know Chairman Menendez asked you some questions about the current back-loaded, backlog in passport uh, processing you know obviously we've been through a very difficult time with COVID. i recognize that and the state department has had to deal with um, all of the pressures that that brings Um, in our state office we've gone from uh, things like uh, small business access to ppp loans uh, being the top priority and other issues to now number one uh, relates to getting passports where my understanding is we now have about a four and a half month average backlog um, and the other big issue, of course, is um, as families now have the opportunity to reunite and visit with friends, the issue of uh, visas uh, for people coming just to visit uh, family and friends in the United States. Can you talk about what we can do uh, right now to address these issues and what, if confirmed, you would, you would do? Um,
4: thank you, Senator. I, um, I am very aware of these issues, um, and I should take this opportunity, of course, uh, to thank Congress for the support that it's given to the Bureau over the last several months. Um, as all of you know, the Bureau is under tremendous financial uh, pressure uh, since the start of the pandemic, and Congress has been enormously responsive uh, in filling some of those gaps um, and allowing the Bureau to continue to deliver consular services. But um, so I know that the Bureau is very grateful and that it will be continuing to engage with Congress on future budgets. Um, I just want to point out that um, these these issues are not just money-related. Um, so while the U.S. is experiencing a return to what feels a little like normal, um, the our posts overseas are still working under some pandemic space constraints, which means that they cannot offer the same number of appointments that they used to because they can't have the same number of people in their waiting room. So... Um, These restrictions are very important. They protect our staff. They protect the customers. They protect the community. But they do limit possibility to provide services. And as a result, what's happened is my colleagues overseas have had to make some difficult prioritization decisions um, about how to use the space that's available to them. So um, if confirmed, this is is very much job one. I recognize that um, folks coming, uh, that visas also impact your community with respect to small businesses, maybe relying on workers overseas that are unable to get back, family reunification, all of those issues. It's it's a, right now. It's a very difficult time. Um, well,
10: thank you for thank you for that that statement. You know, this is the area where our constituents most frequently interact with the State Department, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where they're really feeling the. Presence or lack of um, responsiveness and services. So, uh, our office is working very closely with the team at the State Department. We're grateful for the relationship we have, but this this is a big, big uh, issue—the visa part, but also just getting a passport for U.S. citizens who is here. Um, I, Ms. Medina, thank you for your testimony, and um, I appreciate your mentioning the issue of biodiversity as you mentioned, and you, you, we're seeing a disappearance of biodiversity at alarming uh, rates around the world and look forward to working with you uh, on those, um, those issues uh, going forward. Um, Mr. Smith, um, thank you for taking on this assignment. Um, as you well know, you know, Foreign Service officers go into the Foreign Service to really get to know and interact with the countries um, where they're serving. Um, And so while it is absolutely true that we have to provide security, I hope as you think this through, um, you will also find ways to make sure that our Foreign Service officers overseas can interact with the rest of the population, otherwise they might as well just be in D.C. In Kabul we have, of course, a particularly um, immediate situation, and I I know you'll be monitoring that very carefully with respect to the situation there. Uh, Finally, um, if I could, uh, Mr. Knapper, congratulations on your nomination to Vietnam. Lots of issues to cover, but let me just ask you about one, because over the past several years we've seen Vietnamese authorities increase their scrutiny over Vietnamese citizens' activities on the Internet and social media, cracking down on any kind of uh, free expression, uh, requiring uh, U.S. and other Internet-based companies and social media companies to, to to force them to comply with laws that can crack down on people's speech or try to force them. Can you just talk briefly about how we're dealing with that situation?
6: Well, thank you, Senator. Uh, the one specific case right now that's attracting the most attention, of course, is that of Facebook and uh, the Vietnamese government, in some instances, demanding that Facebook remove certain posts that it finds uh, offensive or contrary to uh, to political order, so to speak. Um, and right now, uh, the U.S. Embassy in Hanoi, we are working very closely with Facebook folks on the ground there, as well as the Vietnamese government, to try and find a way forward that, again, preserves the space on Facebook and other uh, social networking sites to allow for for free speech and to allow for the uh, free expression of political and other views, um, and also just allowing a, an American company to be able to operate uh, without any threat of its data being uh, being cut off or, or throttled is, is the term that they use. But if confirmed, Senator, I will absolutely focus on this. Uh, is, is, a, is a human rights issue, uh, but also it is a press freedom issue. Thank you. I appreciate that. As you say, it's really part of the larger,
10: I think, challenge, growing challenge in Vietnam with respect to human rights. But uh, sure. thank, thank you all for your
0: testimony. Thank you. Mr. Thank you. Uh, some final questions. Uh, Ambassador Smith, uh, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about what seems to be an emerging threat of directed energy attacks targeting U.S. personnel and our ability to pivot and adequately protect them and their families uh, in the face of these attacks. Uh, I hope that will be a major focus for you uh, upon your confirmation.
3: Yes, it will, Senator, yep. and I look forward to engaging as we progress <laughs> on decision. Um,
0: well, that's incredibly important to us because um, uh, you know uh, we ask our people to do incredible work for the United States. We put them sometimes in harm's way, We need to do everything possible to protect them, and uh, this is something that seems to be challenging and escaping to us. So um, I I hope it will become one of your highest priorities upon uh, taking office. Um, One of the most significant challenges I can see on the horizon is the security at Embassy Kabul. Uh, What's your current assessment? I know you're not there yet but of, but from your experience of our ability to ensure the safety and security of the embassy compound, and will you commit to keeping the committee updated on the steps that diplomatic security is taking to ensure the safety of U.S. personnel?
3: If confirmed, Senator, yes, I will commit to that. Uh, Afghanistan will continue to garner a lot of attention, uh, particularly as uh, U.S. forces continue to withdraw, and it's going to be important for Diplomatic Security to remain uh, in, very much engaged, both <laughs> with our uh, colleagues and contacts here and also with uh, the Afghan forces on the ground there to see how they can help to enhance our security operations. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: well, if you, if you you when you get confirmed, uh, I hope you will give us an assessment uh, of what is needed, if anything is needed beyond what we have. And also, Port-au-Prince. Um, uh, we uh, obviously have a, an ongoing difficult situation in Port-au-Prince. Uh, I, I hope you will pay attention. I know you will pay attention globally, but these are some hot spots that uh, I think we need to pay attention to. Do you have any sense of that? Our embassy at Port-au-Prince. Uh,
3: again, I if I, uh, I I agree with you that Port-au-Prince is uh, definitely. A point of concern at this moment uh, I have not received any uh, additional briefings on the activities there beyond what's uh, in the open source but look forward if confirmed to uh, focus in very very clearly and, and specifically on that activity as well okay we'll look forward to hearing
0: from you once you're confirmed uh, Mr. Knapper finally uh, uh, as you contemplate the possibilities of taking the relationship that we have uh, with Vietnam to the next level and inaugurating a genuine strategic partnership, uh, an aspiration I certainly support. Uh, how will you balance our very real shared strategic interests with Vietnam with our ongoing human rights concern? A couple of years back, we had the president of Vietnam here. It was a very interesting exchange. First time in my 30 years of doing foreign policy and sitting with foreign dignitaries, that um, he didn't take any questions. And it's not our process in the committee when we're meeting with a head of state uh, to allow them to ramble along and eventually never take a question. So it was emblematic in my mind of what's going on uh, in Vietnam. What sort of linkages or conditioning do you think is appropriate <coughs> and constructive as we consider additional
6: military? security economic or diplomatic engagement with vietnam thanks mr chairman i think you uh you really have nailed the challenge that we face it's you know how, how do we address our shared strategic interests in the region with vietnam while staying true to our values uh regarding human rights religious freedom uh, other areas and i think If confirmed, I I would like to build upon the the good progress we've we've made so far. We have been able to keep that balance, I believe, between ensuring that our values related to universal human rights are upheld and asserted uh, in our high-level conversations with the Vietnamese government, but at the same time, uh, recognizing that in Vietnam we have no uh, stronger or more vocal partner within ASEAN uh, when it comes to speaking out against the challenge that China poses in the South China Sea and elsewhere in the region. So as I uh, mentioned earlier, Mr. Chairman, I think there are ways uh, to to point out to our Vietnamese government and, and Communist Party of Vietnam interlocutors that there will be limitations to how much our relationship can grow uh, under, under the circumstances in which we have concerns about human rights and religious freedom. And I think uh, we have to make clear that as we do, Consider ways to expand the relationship. Uh, that we will let them know that there there are potential uh, breaks uh, on 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 progress that uh, we'll have to consider. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, uh, Miss Medina, I don't want you to think that I you have no object of my affection uh, or interest. So, but uh, between your statement, uh, your answers with Senator Risch, uh, and Senator Markey's, uh, uh incredible. Uh, Description of, of your history, I think you've answered the issues I'm concerned about. So uh, we look forward to working with you upon your confirmation. Global health uh, for the chairman, uh, for myself, and for the ranking member is, uh, is a critical issue. And while it m- may not seem in the title of, of your uh, position to be the focal point, it is a focal point for this committee. So uh, we will look forward to working with you on that. With no other member, as I understand it, uh, either virtually or present, To come before the committee, the record will remain open until the close of business on Wednesday, July the 14th, for questions. I'd urge the nominees, if you get questions for the record, to answer them fully and expeditiously so we can consider your nominations at a business meeting. And with the thanks of the committee for your willingness to serve, this hearing is adjourned.